five in the eye with Michael and Phil. It's news, but is it new? Hello, and a very warm welcome to this week's Five in the Eye from London. You're listening to Colourful Radio, and I'm Phil Woodford. For episode 0309 today, Michael is taking a well-earned break, which means I'm welcoming a special guest for today's show. He's someone regular listeners will remember, as he's joined us on a couple of occasions before. It's Mr. Olu Alake. Hello there, Olu. Hi, Phil. It's good to be back on Five in the Eye. And I can reveal our top story this week is going to be the controversy over the tweets of England cricketer Ollie Robinson and the ongoing debate over footballers taking the knee during the Euro tournament. A continuation of the so-called culture wars. Five in the eye. And for story number two, we'll discuss the UK's international aid budget. It should be 0.7% of our GDP, but Boris Johnson's government decided to cut it. Tory rebels seemingly had the numbers in the House of Commons to overturn the decision, but they were temporarily thwarted by the Speaker. And our first story is something close to my own heart as a parent. Catching up after COVID might mean longer school hours or kids going to class at the weekend. A good idea or not? Remember Shergar? The racehorse who mysteriously went missing some decades ago? Well, the BBC have launched a podcast on the disappearance and it has an unexpected narrator, Vanilla Ice. Ice, ice, baby. Sorry, I couldn't resist. And finally this week, to wrap up the show, a rat is approaching retirement. Yes, R.A.T. Having dedicated his life to sniffing out mines, that is landmines. How should we memorialise his work? Hmm. I believe you have a theory that the brave critter should be cryogenically suspended in ice on it. I look forward to discussing it with you later. And that's this week's Five in the Eye. Five in the Eye. Okay, well, we're going to kick off this week with, I suppose, what might broadly be described as culture war stories. I mean, I rather dislike that phrase, although I don't know what you think of it, but you'll no doubt give your opinion in a minute. But uh, uh, we're we're talking here about uh, the tweets of Ollie Robinson, the uh, England cricketer. He was discovered to have tweeted uh, racist and sexist messages um, some years ago when he was about 18. And um, as he was making his appearance for England, all this was coming out in the wash and um, he was he's now subject to an investigation by the cricket authorities and Oliver Dowden, the culture secretary, has been sticking his oar in um, and uh, maybe um, suggesting that the 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 um, the ECB has gone too far with all of this. At the same time, we have the Euro tournament kicking off and uh, the England footballers are um, committed to the idea of taking the knee. And um, this has become uh, a very common symbol now of uh, support for the Black Lives Matter campaign. Obviously, um, a gesture that has been around for a very long time, but um, popularised by Colin Kaepernick in America and then uh, came to the UK in the wake of the um, uh, the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the, and the outpouring of anger um, uh, last year. Um, Olu, do you think that, um, first of all, Ollie Robinson deserves another chance? He was a young guy, wasn't he? When he uh, when he tweeted this stuff, he's issued apologies. Should he be held accountable for what he wrote some years ago? Um, yes, he should be. The question is, what level um, of severity should that accountability entail? 
an 18 year old, he was 18 year olds when he wrote when he wrote this. An 18 year old is not a child. You know, um, you're old enough to know exactly what it is that you're writing, to know the kind of reaction you're going to be getting, and to know what what's what base you're trying to rile in making those statements. The idiot actually hashtagged his tweets with hashtag racist, you know? So, I mean, um, when you actually read the, the tweets, they actually are quite, quite shocking. Now, I do accept that people grow, people evolve. And um, I can imagine if Twitter was around in my day when I was 18, um, I am pretty sure that there will be some pretty embarrassing things I would not like to see. I would not want to see the light of day that people might um, uncover. However, um, I would also expect that um, if um, they were uncovered, um, that I would be held accountable for them. And what's does that level of accountability actually entail? It's interesting to note that um, at the moment, all the English cricket board have done, I say all is quite significant because normally they wouldn't do anything. Um, what they have done so far is temporarily suspend him pending further investigations, which I think is fair and reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, and for Oliver Dowden, um, the culture secretary who can very, um, um, readily be redescribed as the culture wars secretary, given his track record on things now, um, just could not resist. He just he just can't resist, you know. Um, as you say, sticking his oar into anything that remotely suggests itself um, as being as you know um, speaking to this particular issue of of wokeism you know um, yeah well the Tory the Tories love this stuff don't they because they they think they're onto a winner with it in terms of electoral politics I mean this this week also I mean not the main subject of our conversation here but you know the front page of the Mail and the Express taken up by the fact that Oxford University students had, had voted to take down a picture of the Queen and their in their common room. I mean, is there any other country in the world where this would be a front page news story? Students decide to take a photo down off the wall. Um, but it's, it, it's it's taken as symbolic of something bigger, isn't it? Yes, it has, you know, yes. It has. And it's, um, you know, it's like um, the whole, and the other um, points, uh, the other story that we are you know, um, relating this to about taking the knee is all part of that whole um, expression of, um, angst against this whole um, anti-racism slash wokeism thing, which they just can't resist um, attacking for whatever reason. And, you know, there's the, they don't even stop to think about the logicality of the arguments that they are making here. You know, so on the one hand, um, there's um, the um, Oli Robinson situation with the, with the tweets. Interestingly, ECB have now uncovered three other current England players who are being investigated for similar tweets as well, going back as recently as five years for some of them. So that'll be quite interesting to see how that pans out. Well, it will be, but in, in in a sense, Olu, doesn't this add fuel to the more conservative elements in society who say, look, this is becoming a witch hunt. You know, if you start trawling through uh, the historic social media of everyone that plays in the England cricket team, well, we won't have a cricket team left soon. And this is political correctness gone mad and so on. 
you might not have those people in the cricket team, but similarly, I mean, you can expect, you can understand why um, some people in the government would, you know, be very, very willing to draw a line under this because they wouldn't want too many things in their past to be uncovered as well. You know, um, it's interesting to note that um, the worst of what this guy has said is nowhere near the worst of the things our prime minister was saying, you know, um, in his own private and professional capacities back around the same time as well, you know, which he has laughed off or which the electorate, his base, have shrugged off as being inconsequential. So um, there is a very dirty political element to this um, as well. Um, I don't think anyone is suggesting that anyone who was found guilty of, you know, um, tweets that they made, they might have thought in jest what is still quite offensive, 15, 20 years ago, you know, should be hung, drawn and quartered and excised from public life forever. Um, But they should be held accountable for it. And as long as there isn't a pattern of ongoing behaviour, you know, Mm -hmm. from then till now, then, um, you know, um, with sanctions, um, a line can be drawn under it. And I think that's what most reasonable people would Yeah, and I, I think what you're saying sounds very reasonable to me, and I, I, I would agree with you on that. I mean, just, just before we leave the topic, on, on the question of the taking the knee, I mean, obviously an issue that's arisen is that um, we've started playing matches in front of live crowds again. And, the, you know, the, the practice of taking a knee arose during the coronavirus pandemic. There were empty stadia. Um, it was shown on TV. Um, but when the crowds have gone back in, there is a segment, a rather ugly segment of, of, of football supporters, either at club level or international level, who will boo the players for taking the knee. Now, I mean, uh, what, what's your reaction to those people, Olu? What could, and what can we do about them? I mean, are they ever going to be educated? Uh, are they ever going to change their minds or change their ways? They prob- many of them are hopeless cases. It has to be said. I mean, you can't. Uh, something. Some people will just refuse to see the logic of this or the logicality of what they're doing. So, on the one hand, you are there to support your team. Your team are making a gesture based solely on principle. No, it's not about any political affiliation or, you know, closet Marxism, as one of our wonderful MPs chose to <laughs> describe it. It's people, you know, making a gesture of solidarity against something that deeply affects society. Um, so for people who are meant to be their own supporters to be booing them while doing that and then expects them not to be affected, you know, by that when they're just a few moments later, when they're meant to be playing um, very important games, is just is just beyond, is, I mean, it's beyond me how they can think like that. So if the, and they can't call themselves proper fans because otherwise they wouldn't be doing things that could, you know, um, be performance of the team, you know, that they have gone there to support. And if that's what they're doing, I mean, what really can be done about it is, I choose to believe, I'm pretty sure, that these knuckleheads are the minority in the crowd. Mm-hmm. And it's really up to everyone else who is around them to drown them out, not just drown them out, but probably to get them kicked out, you know, um, as well, not to be associated, that they don't want them associated with them, and they don't want them impacting the team in that way um, as well. So it's really one one way in which um, you know, people can not just demonstrate their allyship with the cause, but really um, to assert their own sense of decency uh, about 
you know, what they mm. were tolerating, tolerate as well. Well, good to see Gareth Southgate uh, sticking up for the players, being the manager uh, this week. And I'm sure the um, culture wars, whatever form they take, is something that we'll be returning to on Five it's in the Eye. <laughs> but for now, we will move on to story number two. Five in the Eye. So our second story is going to be about the um, international aid budget. Olu, you, you were keen to put this on the agenda. Just talk us through the recent developments um, uh, the, uh, about the, the aid budget and the Tory rebels and, and what you made of it. Right. So um, once upon a time, not too long ago, about 10, 15 years ago, um, every member of the G7 agreed that um, they would contribute 0.7% of their GDP to international aid efforts. And each country still had the opportunity within that to define exactly on what um, programs or areas or thematic areas that they would want that 0.7% um, invested in. <clears throat> at the last elections, as at every election since um, this um, accord was broached, all the political parties committed themselves in their manifestos to maintaining the 0.7% of GDP. Um, until quite recently, when our dear government decided that they didn't want to do 0.7%, they would do 0.4%, making them the only G7 country to be slashing um, the this this on this commitment. So um, interestingly, um, there's been a lot of opposition even within the Tory party, Previous prime ministers such as um, John Major and Theresa May have been very, very vocal about it. Gordon Brown has been very, very vocal about it. Um, and you know, quite there's been quite a sizable um, rebellion um, on um, in Parliament about that. But again, our good old prime minister and his team have decided that that's just noise, and it's um, as he called it Jim. Prime Minister's questions today, it's leftish Marxist propaganda, you know, all this um, talk about slashing the budgets because we're still spending a lot of money on it. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, you know, that the counter argument here might be that although uh, other members of the G7 have signed up to this, um, I, I think maybe France doesn't deliver on the 0.7% the and um, other countries at different times maybe haven't. Um, you know, that when the rebels say, well, you know, um, the 0.7% the, the must be stuck to the government's defence is, well, we've just been through the coronavirus crisis. We've um, borrowed and printed countless billions of pounds and the public expects us now to start, you know, managing the finances, bringing things back under control again. And, and the government probably knows, don't they, that once again, not wishing to return to the culture wars argument, but they probably have a fair bit of support on this. Because when you look at polling, um, many people seem to be quite cynical about the, the benefits of aid. Yeah, and um, it's it's all part of the, um, the more recent trends towards... No economic jingoism, which has been going on um, a lot over the last three, four, five years, um, where we look at anything, you know, external that we do, external and 
we're not saying where we're not adopting the to use the Trumpism UK first approach um, to to things as being irresponsible. I think the argument that you know we're coming out of COVID and therefore we should be you know slashing back on this kind of things is actually very very myopic. It's very very short sighted mm-hmm. because what COVID should have taught us more than anything else is that um, you know these international things that where we don't take care of them where we can have a way of washing up on our shores quite literally mm-hmm. in the case of um migrants um you know migrants crossing the channel and everything now as well so what we can do you know to forestall you know future problems and the future the gap between now and future and some of these issues is becoming narrower and narrower um you know we really should be doing it's not 0.7 percent in absolute terms, based on a fixed, you know, budget set five years ago, it's 0.7% of whatever we have to spend. So it will be going down, you know, as um, our finances shrink. But that also means that we have the opportunity to target what it is that we're going to be spending that 0.7% on in far more meaningful ways and in ways in which, you know, um, could actually help us um, coming out of the post-COVID um, um, recession. One of the things we should have learned from COVID is that until everyone is safe, really no one is safe. Mm-hmm. And until, um, you know, they, the government could have repurposed that whole thing and said, rather than cut the 0.7%, what we're going to be doing is focusing, maybe even using that as, as um, aid to get jabs to poorer countries in the world well yeah i mean we 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 are supposedly we're supposedly pledging aren't we to uh support countries through the covax program and um we've talked about 100 million vaccines and so on and you know i i don't see why uh yeah some some of that spending might not be classed as aid i mean what do you think just just uh just as a, a broader point olu i mean what about the argument that actually um you know richer countries could probably be doing an awful lot more in in terms of supporting the developing world and that you know these are the crumbs from the rich man's table we set the terms of it there it's a kind of charity a largesse and um, the power relationship is all wrong here and uh, do you have any of those kind of qualms about the aid program from that perspective i'm not a big fan of aid um not aid as 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 has been conceived um, and as we have utilized it um, in recent times, um, I think then yes, it does. You know, you do get the whole. Um, you do you do tread more into the, you know, charity um, and power dynamics um, far more in that way. But um, I think aid repurposed um, to really empower communities and nations um, and help to, you know, undo some of the damage of the um, of the structural adjustment programs that, you know, have been in place and so on for, for many years. I think, I you know, so liberalization of some of the trade um, structures that we have in place with some of these countries, making it easier for the farmers, technical support for agriculture and things like that. All those kind of things um, as you know is far more meaningful um, for me and I think for the countries um, than you know just 
donating um, money here and there. I think for, um, apart from obviously for natural um, emergencies, you know, so there is that, you know, there's an earthquake somewhere, then yes, we should do what we can to help out um, in those instances. But those are the minorities, frankly. Um, It's really um, about things that we do for human development um, in in those countries and economic empowerment, which I think should be more of the focus without delving into Priti Patelish territory where um, you make AIDS um, totally contingent on pursuing of our national political interests, you know, because then that's another step too far um, in terms of how we are. That, that really is an abuse of power as well. We, we, we try not to t- delve too deeply in, into anything too pretty patelish on this uh, on this show, Olu. So that's a cue. That's definitely a cue to <laughs> <laughs> definitely a cue to move on to story number three. Five in the eye. And our third story this week was also something that Olo picked up. Now, you and I, Olo, were both parents. Uh, my kids are uh, away at university and, you know, they've had their own issues with, with COVID as university students. But you wanted to talk about um, schools. And this is something, you know, Michael and I touched on this last week, the, uh, the idea that um, kids may have fallen quite a long way behind, and there's this being debate. There's been this debate about how much money is needed in order to uh, to put things right. But one possible option is that you know to help kids is that we start extending the school days, or we get the kids coming in at the weekends, or we find new ways of teaching. I'm just interested in your own experience during lockdown, your uh, your, your family experience, and, and and maybe what you think about some of these plans. Yeah, well, it's it's quite a complex issue. Um, And um, what has really made this um, 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 a really uh, a big news story are two things. One, um, the government has tried to make it make a very has tried to has offered a very simplistic solution to a very complex issue. Um, So they um, appointed Kelvin Collins to undertake a review of um, how children have been affected during COVID and uh, children's education has been affected and what should be put in place to help them to catch up. Um, Now, um, as someone who homeschooled for nine months, um, I was more than happy for schools to, when schools reopened, I think my children, but, um, and there was a question um, as to exactly how they are doing um, and what that actually means in the, in the, in the big, in the big, in the big, in the big picture um, of their overall education. Uh, My children, um, my primary school age children are actually quite young. So one is six, one is, one is seven, one is four. Um, so the six and three during lockdown. And the question is, what have they fallen behind? So that was that's the first problem I had with this whole conversation. Um, so so Kelvin Collins um in 
million pound package, you know, which included things like, you know, um, school extensions and so on. The government eventually watered that down to 1.5 billion pounds. But the fundamental questions that I ask are, uh, what are they actually catching up on? How have children actually been impacted? And what students have been most impacted, you know, by by COVID? Because that's where the focus needs um, to be. When we think about the education systems that are probably the most impactful um, in the world, um, in Scandinavia, for instance, Finland, Sweden, children actually start school to seven, sometimes eight years old. And yet by the time they complete secondary school, they've got some of the best educated children you know, um, in terms of results and outcomes in the Mm. world, you know. So um, this whole idea that we have and how we commodify education in this country, making, putting pressure on children, parents, making your child is behind because we have these arbitrary measures of where they should be at certain key stages. I I mean, mean, you're obviously, you're quite right to mention Scandinavia who get very, very good results. And a lot of European countries don't have kids in school at such an early stage but I mean you could also if I play in devil's advocate you could point to the more hothouse environments of Asia and cultures like China and South Korea and so on where where kids are working relentlessly often very long hours and uh, is that reflected in the success of the the economies and, and 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 so on perhaps some people might argue I was going to make about this, um, that the real impact of COVID has been more on the social and mental um, well-being of children. And uh, those hothouse environments of um, the of um, the Far East that you that you mentioned, those are the areas where so they get the educational attainment scores and everything, but those are the areas, the social and the mental, where they are where they feel most adverse impacts. Mm. And that's what we are seeing more of with our children. Um, my, my solution to this would be um, the 1.5 billion pounds um, package that the government has put together is paltry and is not well targeted. Um, mm. What I would focus on is um, for those children who have been, who, 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 are, who are behind, who's parents have not had any capacity um, either intellectually or um, economically, you know, to, to, to help the children sufficiently during um, lockdown to provide them with um, support, especially those who are coming to GCSEs or the transition into secondary school. I'd focus more on those. Ones. And for all the other children, I think we should, we should have declared a summer of play for them and actually open up schools um, for social activities and sports activities and so on for children to recover some of that social and you know mm. mental and physical activity levels which have deteriorated massively through lockdown and that would have been more I would have focused far more on that than I would have on this ongoing debate about whether we either need to extend the school year or we need to extend the school day for the rest of the year for any period of time. I'd say let them play more, let them have a happier memory of 2021 than they had of 2020, you know, let them reconnect with themselves and with each other, let them grow psychologically Logically and emotionally, and yeah, let's let's have happy children again, rather than you know um, any any, any children who are being pressured in. 
any any kids listening, um, I, I'm sure will be delighted at Olu's uh, <laughs> Olu's prescription, a summer of play. Um, let's let's hope that it gets taken up by the government. Live in the eye. Story number four this week is about a very mysterious um, case that dates from about 40 years ago. And so probably only our older listeners will have a particular memory of this. But um, there was a um, uh, there, there, there was a, a racehorse called Shergar that went missing. Um, and, you know, there were lots of allegations about what might have happened to this uh uh, this uh, fine beast that had uh, had, had bestrode the racetracks, uh, and there was a there was a long police hunt and investigation. Shergar was never found, and uh, there is quite a lot of intrigue in it. And in the kind of world of modern day podcasting, uh, these kind of unsolved cases have a particular allure. And so the BBC have put together a package which is all about this um, disappearance of Shergar and who was implicated in it, you know, as some suggestion Irish Republicans were involved in it and so on. So it's all, it's all pretty murky and tied back to uh, potentially to the troubles in Northern Ireland and so on. Um, but who should the BBC get to narrate this? Olu, none other than uh, Robert Matthew Van Winkle, who's better known professionally as Vanilla Ice, um, who came to prominence in the early 90s with his uh, unique uh, hip hop style and um, seems a very unlikely narrator for the story of Shergar. But apparently the guy is a big fan of racing. What did you what did you make of this this strange alliance between the BBC Vanilla Ice and the topic of Shergar. <laughs> it's uh, it's quite it's quite it's quite amusing. Um, and what's amusing about it is because it's Vanilla Ice. You know, um, it's not because it's an American who's narrating it. It's not necessarily because um, of the story um, itself, which is quite intriguing. You know, and quite a quite um, an enduring sports mystery. Um, um, story. It's just the idea of Mr. Ice Ice Baby now going into <laughs> horse horse baby. You know that's <laughs> that's that, that's a really funny thing um, about it. Um, but um, you know he he does lend a certain um, global um, attraction, I suppose, to the to to the story. It was it and it still is a. A big story across the racing world. I mean, um, apparently Shergar was meant to be like the Usain Bolt of horses of his day, you know. So people were really, really, um, you know, um, interested in the in the story um, at the time, and still are. Um, and um, you know, there was an international element to it as well, um, with suggestions that um, Aga Khan will, was um, one of the owners or might have ordered the kidnapping of the horse and you've got the Irish Republicans and you know all the troubles and uh, uh, during the time and the the American as well, the Irish American politicians. So there's quite an international link to it. So I, I guess in some ways that does lend itself to an international voice. Um, whether international voice should have been um, Mr. 
ice. Um, however, I do I do wonder. <laughs> it, it sort of begs the question: what what other unlikely celebrities might I suppose be asked to 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 pick up? You know, unusual subjects. I mean, I remember when when I was a a, a kid, another big disappearance in the UK was Lord Lucan. Lord Lucan, this aristocrat who who uh, was accused of uh, uh, of a crime, and suddenly he he disappeared. And and Lord Lucan was synonymous for, for with, with the idea of with, with the idea of someone just just vanishing, couldn't couldn't be found. So I'm thinking, is there a is there another maybe Snoop Dogg or someone like this could 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 rustle up a podcast on. On Lord Lucan, there must be there must be Lord further potential here. On things like this, you know, <laughs> that would be that would be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's see. Five in the eye. Story number five this week. Just to finish off the show, uh, we wanted to talk about a very special little animal, uh, and he's called Magawa. Um, and he's a rat. Now, it's not often we focus on a rat, let alone a named rat on five in the eye but he got a gold medal for his work in uh, detecting landmines and so little um the little rodent has been out in uh cambodia and um he has a handler um just like a you know a, a, a the police uh, a police dog might have a handler there's around six million landmines in in Cambodia, which uh, date back to uh, the, the the conflict there in decades past. And um, Magawa was trained by a Belgian charity called the Popo, which is based in Tanzania, and they they kind of teach these rats to go out sniffing landmines, other explosive devices. Um, he's if you have a look online, you can see a picture of Magawa with his little gold medal. And uh, is this enough, do you think, to commemorate his his, his good works, Olu? You, I think you had some other suggestions. Oh, Mago was a hero. I mean, just think about, I mean, he could sniff out a field um, in 30 minutes that would take a whole team of people with metal detectors up to a week, you know, to, to clear. So I can just imagine how many lives and limbs um he saved in his in his career so yeah he i mean i'm not sure he appreciates a gold chain um uh, magoa <laughs> but i and i'm not sure exactly what that is going to do to humanity um or to i'm um, just having him weighed down with, with some bling what i would do um is um, and leads to another story that came out this week that um, some microorganisms that had been frozen for 24,000 years found in Siberia, um, I think due to global warming, um, have been um, have been revived, you know, so they've been stuck in a state of cryobiosis, I think it's called, um, for 24,000 years. And now they're back to they're back to life. So yeah. I would like to see I'd like to see Magawa preserved for for eternity. And then who knows in 24,000 years' time, hopefully humanity will be more sensible than to lay do something stupid like lay landmines um, to destroy themselves. But you never know, you know, um, you know, things go go around and maybe we'll be invaded by aliens by then we would uh, might have set loads of landmines for them. So yeah, there's a whole yeah, maybe we can get vanilla ice to to narrate this story as well in 24,000 years. <laughs> 
the, 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 the great the great uh, story of Maga with a rat. Maga with I mean, in twenty four thousand years time, mm-hmm. may, maybe it'll all be lost in the mists of time, and and Magawa will be some kind of godlike figure to the to the populations that that roam the earth in in twenty four thousand years. They wouldn't, they, and when they see his little gold medal, they'll think that it was a sign that perhaps he he ruled a kingdom. Yes, bow down! Here comes King Magawa, King Magawa the Great. <laughs> Well, well done, well done to Magua. Of yeah, we, we 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 take we take our hats off to you, and uh, I wish you a very happy retirement. Five in the eye. Well, that's it for another week. It's time to put the show on ice, vanilla ice, perhaps. Until next Friday, when Michael's back in the hot seat. Thanks so much to Olu for joining me today and filling the old man's shoes. Oh, thank you very much, um, Phil. It's been um, an absolute pleasure, as usual. And if you want to find out more about the stories being considered for next week's show, just visit um, Suggestions of Your Own. You can comment. But for now, this is me, Ulu Alake, saying goodbye and wishing you all the best for the week ahead. And this is Phil Woodford reminding you to keep an eye on the news as you never know what Michael and I will be discussing on next week's Five in the Eye. Goodbye. Goodbye. Five in the Eye with Michael and Phil. It's news, but is it new?